Hey everyone, welcome back to the Missio podcast. We are beginning a brand new series that I'm actually very, very excited for. Um, over the past five years of Missio, we have walked through uh, kind of some, well, some several big picture areas or themes in scripture from walking through the entire Old and New Testaments in our first couple of years. And then we taught the way of Jesus and some of his encounters and his teachings. And then we spent all last year looking at the kingdom. And so as we were thinking about where to go next, we started thinking about how the kingdom that we just talked about last year and then all of the ways of Jesus that we looked at two years ago, they are all made possible because of the Holy Spirit shaping and empowering us to bring the kingdom near for all people. And so all this year, we're going to be teaching our way through uh, the Holy Spirit You know, there is, I believe, at the heart of our faith, a mystery and a wonder that is at work that goes beyond what you and I are fully aware of or can really even understand. And part of that mystery is certainly the experience and power of the love of God, a love that is one of the strongest binding forces of God's presence, both in creation and beyond creation. It's a love that has, as Paul says in Romans 5, been poured into the hearts of his people through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. It's love that caused Jesus to step into the human story and then into his death and resurrection. And it's love that sent the Spirit to dwell with humanity upon Jesus' return to the throne of God. And so as we talk about the Spirit all this year, the thing to keep in mind is this reality of love and the desire of God to be present with you that is at work in the Spirit's movement to relentlessly push us towards life and beauty and towards flourishing, toward shaping the human story and the story of all of creation, toward that new reality of the new heavens and the new earth that we talked about all last year. And so I want us to look today at a passage that I think is really important as we get started which is in John chapter 14, verses 15 through 21. And we're going to look at several other passages as well. But in this particular moment, Jesus has been with his disciples for several years now. He's been teaching them. He's been engaging in life and ministry with them. And then he enters into Jerusalem in John chapter 12, kind of in the way of the kings that the kings did. He was establishing himself as the, the true king. And then he spends the rest of the Gospel of John leading up to his crucifixion, teaching his disciples, uh, realizing, though, that the end of their time together was actually coming near. He he, He knew, right, that the time was coming when he would no longer be with his disciples the way that he had been for the past few years. When when, uh, Laura and I were living in Memphis... I was a grad student there. Uh, There was a Christmas uh, season when Laura's sister and her family stayed with us for a week or so. And it was a really significant time with them because they were actually getting ready to move to Portugal for several years to learn Portuguese so that then they could eventually move to Angola where they were going to begin their uh, mission work that they had been working on for many, many years. And so it was kind of like the last time, or at least it felt like the last time that we were going to get to spend that kind of time with them, playing games, laughing together, sharing our lives together, at least in the way that we had been able to for years before. You know, it's honestly hard to go on vacation with people when they live 9,000 miles away. But I remember that that week being filled with joy 
but also kind of mixed in with these feelings of finality attached to it. Obviously, they were going to be coming back to the States every few years, and we would get to spend time with them, but we would never have the opportunity to live in the same area with them or just kind of plan like spontaneous trips uh, with them. And so I just remember very distinctly this feeling in the pit of my stomach as we were saying goodbye to them. Like I didn't want them to go, but I was also excited for them to begin this dream of working in Africa that they had had for for years and years. But I think there are those moments where you don't want people to leave, even though you know that they have to leave. And in those moments, there is probably this mixed bag of emotions that kind of swirls inside of us, deep within inside of us. And I imagine that that's what the disciples were feeling in Jerusalem with Jesus in these final days with him. They had been with him for three years. They had seen him march through the streets of Jerusalem, being declared king, and yet Jesus begins to talk to them about the necessity of his departure talking about his betrayal, about having to leave. And it doesn't take a lot of effort to imagine the disciples having that feeling in the pits of their stomach as they realized that Jesus was serious and that things were about to change. That the moments of walking with Jesus, learning from him, laughing with him, and more were all about to end. And so this is actually what I love about John chapter 14, because there is this undeniable truth about Jesus that we begin to see in this moment in John chapter 14, as Jesus's love for his friends swells inside of him and he sees them as they are in that moment. He sees them as his friends and his family. And so much of what he says to his friends in John chapter 14 has to be interpreted through that lens of his undeniable love and care for them. As he sees their confusion and their bits of kind of pain and uncertainty, as he sees on their faces the turmoil that is taking place within them, knowing that their leader and friend is about to leave. And so Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 1, he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. I am going to prepare a place for you, but I will come back and take you with me. You know the way to the place I am going. You know, I think sometimes we read scripture with whatever emotion that we are feeling within us in the moment, which isn't necessarily always a bad thing, but it can perhaps artificially impose our own assumptions on the text that aren't actually there. So if we are having a rough morning with our kids or with a friend or whoever, and then we read this passage, we could potentially read what Jesus is saying with the same kind of frustration that we were experiencing just moments ago, right? So we could read this as Jesus kind of scolding his disciples, like, don't be afraid. How how dare you be afraid? Rather than him saying this from a posture of love. Because again, Jesus sees the inner tension of his friends, and I think it causes his heart to swell for them. This isn't a command that he is directing at them. It's the deepest moment of compassion that he is feeling for them. And so he says, you know this place that I am going, to which Thomas responds by saying, we don't know where you are going, so how can we possibly know the way? And again, this was not some like static or robotic response by Thomas. It was filled with emotions ranging from hurt and despair, longing and uncertainty. And Jesus answers with one of his most well-known sayings. He says in verse 6 of chapter 14, I am the way and the truth 
and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So last year at Missio, we kind of talked about this idea that Jesus' second advent, this future return of Jesus, would bring completeness and wholeness, healing, and would make all things new. It would restore all things so that there was no longer going to be hurt or thirst or war or pain or anything like that. And in this moment, Jesus is trying to help his friends understand that the future perfect kingdom is about to be unleashed. It's about to be poured out, which poured out is a, is a term that we're going to be looking at all year. But it's going to be poured out because of his love that he has for his disciples and his people. And so then we get to this passage that I want us to sit in uh, with today. Starting in verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commands. Now, Jesus is essentially asking them a rhetorical question in this moment. If you love me, which he knows that they do love him, which basically I feel like he's saying, since you do love me, keep my commands. And right before this, in chapter 13, Jesus tells them that he is giving them a new command, which is to love one another. He says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So in response to this tension that he feels and sees within each one of his disciples and friends, he says, look, if you love me, keep my command that I just gave you. Because the more that you love one another, the more the very truth of my purpose and intention in the world will saturate your relationships and your very beings. And so Jesus then starts from this place of love. He continues in John chapter 14, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. See again, Jesus knows that he has to leave. But part of Jesus' departure meant the arrival of the Spirit to be the very presence of God, the very presence of Jesus within people forever. And because of the Spirit, he tells them, you will forever have me near you and you will be able to see me. Basically, he's saying, yes, I'm about to leave, but just wait because it's going to get even better in a bit Because my presence that you have been walking with and talking with and seeing every day for the past three years is coming back and is actually going to live in you forever. Jump down to verse 25 of John chapter 14. It says, All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So last year, obviously, we wrapped up Advent, uh, and this was not that long ago at the end of last year. And we talked about this idea of peace during Advent. And one of the things that we noticed was how peace, kind of broadly in our world, tends to be tied to you as an individual, personally, right? Or your immediate group of people that you are most intimately connected with. And then from there, it branches off to include whatever and whoever you are most passionate about. And so we said that peace, as it is typically perceived all around us, is often viewed as coming to me or to you 
at the expense of someone else. As if pieces like this kind of limited commodity that needs to be captured for me and for us, and if other people don't get it, then oh well, it doesn't really matter. At least I have peace. And so we talked last year during Advent about how that's just simply not the peace that Jesus brought in his Advent. That we are not the gatekeepers of peace, as if Jesus came to give us permission to like hoard peace for ourselves. That that peace is in fact for all people, which makes it something that is so hard for us to comprehend because that typically is not the way the peace works in our world. And Jesus says this himself, he says this as much here with his disciples. He says, I am giving you a peace that will shape the human story moving forward, but it is a peace that is so different from what you are used to and is impossible to create through your own power and might. It has to come through the power of the Spirit being poured out in all things. I think we often assume in churches that we are the gatekeepers of God's movement in the world, that we get to determine who are the right ones who should get things like the spirit, like peace or love or goodness or joy or salvation or whatever it is. And yet one of the things that we're going to learn about the spirit this year is reflected in one of those really famous Chronicles of Narnia lines about Aslan, and I'm sure you guys have heard this line before, but Mr. Beaver is talking to the Pe... Pe what are their names? The Pevensey? Wow, I just couldn't figure out how to say their name. He's talking to the kids, uh, and he's talking to them about Aslan. And, and what he says about Aslan is kind of echoed throughout the rest of the Chronicles of Narnia. And so Mr. Beaver says that Aslan is not a tame lion, meaning he kind of comes and goes and does what it is that he wants to do in and throughout Narnia. See, the spirit is not something that we get to dictate where it goes and who it descends on and what the spirit does. Peter, in Acts chapter 11, actually says the same thing. He, he is seeing the Spirit be gifted to people who he didn't initially kind of expect to receive the Spirit. And then he says in Acts chapter 11, verse 17, If then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was, who was I that I could hinder God? His point was that the movement of God to bring the reality of heaven near, to bring healing and presence and love and peace near for all people, is not something that we can stand in the way of. That God's spirit is being poured out in a way that cannot be controlled by us. And so in this John chapter 14 moment, Jesus is letting his friends know that his presence will be with them because of the spirit, that the spirit would transform them and would guide them in the movement that was begun by Jesus and that was going to be continued through all of them. That movement was one of love and peace, and it needed the spirit's power and activity to make happen through them. There is a truth about the Spirit that I think is so important as we begin this year of asking all sorts of questions about the Spirit. Who is the Spirit? What does the Spirit do both in us and around us? I'm sure that there's all sorts of questions about the Spirit. What is the fruit of the Spirit supposed to do in the world? Are there more spirits than just the Holy Spirit? What about spiritual gifts? We're going to dig into all these questions and probably a lot more, and hopefully we're going to answer them as best as we possibly can. 
But the thing that has to ground everything that we discuss and discover this year is that it is the depth of God's love, it is the depth of Jesus' affection and his desire to have his presence be near his people, to transform his people, and to continue his mission to make peace reign throughout all creation that is the reason and the impetus and the motivation for the Holy Spirit's presence being given to humanity. If we start there and we really believe that truth, then yes, there are going to be moments this year where we are going to have to just kind of be content with the mystery of things that cannot be fully known. But in that mystery, we're going to cling to what is real and true, which is that it was out of the overflow of the power of love that the Spirit moves and is working to bring the best of heaven near for all people. It was Jesus' loving act for his people. That caused him to send the spirit which has been poured out in the world. You know, so often in scripture, the way the spirit is described is as a running water or a flowing river that is being poured out on all of creation. And it's like Jesus' intention in sending the spirit was that it would saturate the earth. Some of the passages that, that talk about being poured out, Isaiah 44 verse 3, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on the offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Ezekiel 39. For I will pour out my spirit on the people of Israel, declares the Lord. Joel 2. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions, even on my servants, both men and women. I will pour out my spirit in those days. Acts chapter 2, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Acts chapter 10, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Titus chapter 3. He saved us, not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of, of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. And then Romans chapter 5 says, And the hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You know, a couple of weeks ago, Laura and I took our kids to the Seattle Art Museum to, to uh, see the, the Hokusai exhibit. And the exhibit is gone now, but um, this Hokusai exhibit was amazing. Hokusai was a, a Japanese artist born in the mid-1700s, and he remains one of Japan's and honestly one of the world's most famous artists. And, and probably one of his most famous uh, paintings comes from a series of paintings that he called the 36 Views of Mount Fuji, which is pretty incredible. But again, just imagine it's 36 different angles and in every single one of them, there is a picture of Mount Fuji. But the most famous of those 36 views of Mount Fuji is called the Great Wave. And honestly, you've probably seen this before. If not, you can pause this and look it up. It's probably something that you've seen before. It's actually one of the most reproduced pieces of art in history. But the image shows this huge wave with a couple of boats that are either riding the wave or they're about to be crashed into by the wave. And then kind of smaller in the background is this view of Mount Fuji. 
Now, all too often, when I imagine the ocean, I picture it as this menacing death trap of fear and destruction. Mostly, this is because I'm a gigantic baby and the ocean scares me. But I was surprised when I looked at this wave by Hokusai that instead of fear, what I saw was power in the midst of beauty, movement and life saturating the scene. And as I was preparing for this teaching, introducing the spirit, my mind kept wandering to Hokusai's great wave, imagining the spirits, the kind of the spirit moving with power, uncontrolled by humanity, but gifted out of a love and desire to bring life to the world in a way that was just not simply experienced except through the spirit. I think the Holy Spirit can often feel like a scary thing to dig, dig into. There are plenty of unknowns when it comes to the Spirit. Do we really buy into the unseen spiritual force uh, of power and movement? How do we make sense of something that feels mysterious in countless ways and just simply unknowable in others? But when we start by reminding ourselves that the Holy Spirit is the embodiment of Jesus' love for you and me, given so that we could experience the overwhelming peace of God in our world, then the rest, I think, gets sifted through the lens, that lens, and becomes this beautiful and powerful life-giving movement in our lives and in the world all around us. I was having a conversation with a friend about the Spirit uh, this past week, and we were discussing some of the misconceptions about the Spirit, which we're going to dig into a lot of the misconceptions that are around the Spirit this year. But we were talking about how often in churches we talk about the Spirit like there is like this moment in time in a person's life where the Spirit shows up and zaps you, imparting you with some specific gift that was ripped out of a list of in Scripture on spiritual gifts. A list which was never meant to be used as like some kind of drop-down menu for your new spiritual power that God was giving you now. And we were discussing how so much of the role of the Spirit in Scripture was less about figuring out what gifts you had been given, like speaking in tongues or prophecy or whatever, and it was more about creating language around understanding the Spirit so that we could begin to live our lives noticing the Spirit and His work all around us. So much of the deficiency in our understanding of spiritual things, I think, has less to do with whether or not the Spirit is actually alive and active in us and around us, and it's more to do with our lack of knowing how to see and understand how so many of the things that take place all around us are a result of the spirit of Spirit's movements in those things. And so this year is less about giving you all of the information that there is on the Spirit, or the spirit world, because that would be simply impossible to do in a year. But rather, our goal is to help put some language to the spirit that will help all of us to start noticing the constant movement and activity of the spirit both in us and all around us. The spirit was sent out of a deep love for you and I and for all, all people and all of God's creation. The Spirit is the very presence of God with us, transforming us and guiding us to be people who are bringing God's peace into a hurting world in a way that will shape all things moving forward. So I'm actually really excited for this series this year. And my prayer is that we are awakened to the movement of the Holy Spirit, both in us personally, but also in us as a church this year. Thank you for listening, everyone. I hope you have a wonderful week. Bye.